Uh, today's scripture is from 2 Samuel 6, uh, verses 12 through 19. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. When he gave a loaf of bread a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. Before I start, and it does work into the sermon, but just a little, uh, I don't know, winter weather advice from someone that grew up in upper Midwest, Minnesota, harsh winters, right? Many of you live in the mountains now, so here's my a uh, little thing that I found the other week that I thought was amazing. Have you ever heard of an emergency candle for in your car? Some of you are like, of course. Other of you look very confused. Uh, what this is, is it's a candle that burns super long, and normally there are like multiple wicks going on. So it's like three wicks. You just look it up on Amazon. You'll find it. Uh, and get, this works into the sermon. Don't get too confused. Uh, and, and, you know, in the worst case scenario, your car goes off the road, you're kind of stranded in your vehicle. Uh, if you're able to keep your car shut, you know, normally at that point, your car's not really running. Um, and, and you kind of lose heat in your vehicle. And often it's, it's safer to stay inside. So by three wicks on a candle, they've proven that it can raise the temperature inside your car a great amount. And there's actually candles you can get now that are like three-day candles. They burn forever. And they're just little tin things. Don't leave it in there in the summer or it'll melt. Uh, be a big mess. Uh, maybe not scented. I don't know how the bears feel about it. But um, yeah, just, just this neat thing. And the reason I, I bring it up is as we're in this sermon series uh, on the royal priesthood and looking at the story of priests in the Bible, kind of starting with the very first uh, section of Genesis all the way through, that, that this is kind of a slow burn kind of sermon series. It's, it's like a 36-hour candle. Kind of thing, but we're getting there. Jesus is coming. <laughs> it's all leading to that, not to spoil the end. Hopefully that didn't wreck the sermon series for too many people. It's all leading up to Jesus. It's all leading uh, into next week with, with Palm Sunday, where we get to talk about Jesus as our king. Uh, and then Easter, we're going to talk about Jesus as the true high priest. Uh, and it's just this beautiful connection. But again, uh, we're not there yet. Uh, this week is on David, the priest king. Uh, we started the sermon series a, a few weeks ago, and we talked about Adam and Eve, and how in the garden they're actually kind of living into this priestly role that, that later on even the tabernacle and the temple have a lot of garden elements, a lot of garden themes in it, and, and it's kind of this, 
this little piece of Eden that they're able to live into, into a right relationship with God. And, and it's through this special role that God puts forward, the special role of the priest. Uh, and if you weren't here, a, a priest in the Bible is simply this. There's, there's God, and he's above all, and then there's humanity. And especially through the Old Testament, someone needs to stand in the gap between a holy God uh, and, and people. And there's a special role in the Bible, and they're called the priests. So this is different than how we typically use priests in today's world, but they're the special role. They stand in the gap. They take the, the offerings and the sacrifices that the people give. The priests receive them, and they turn around and they give those to God. And they do the opposite. They receive blessings from God, and they turn around and they give those to the people. So there's this special role. And we see Adam and Eve living into that. And then as the story continues, we come across Abraham and Sarah and their family, and they are called again into this special, this special role, and there's this priestly element. And then we get their descendants. And their descendants, of course, are in Egypt, and they're, they're rescued from slavery in Egypt. And one of the first promises they receive is that God wants to make them a nation of priests. God wants to make them an entire people group that are all priests. So they're all those people that are standing in the gap. And, and unfortunately, you don't have to read very long before you see them just brutally fail. If the Old Testament was written to be some kind of priest, priesthood fan fiction, it does a terrible job. You don't have to read very far at all before you realize there's got to be a different answer. There's got to be something else. Aaron... Uh, is the first high priest, and, and right away, what does he do? He builds the golden calf. That's, that's his first act. He builds the golden calf, and it, it's just very obvious. And then his two sons, who are, who are also priests, his two sons are there, and the two sons um, also start leading the people astray. The two sons do. It, it's not super clear in Scripture. It says they do what God did not command them to do. God gives them very clear rules. They do what God did not command them to do. They bring in a certain sacrifice. God is not happy about it, and God strikes them dead right in the tabernacle that day. This is the start of the priesthood. So again, terrible fan fiction, if that's what you're thinking this is. If you're thinking this is going to be some story where the priests are some kind of heroes, and, and then they lead the people to God, and they're able to do it. They're able to stand in the gap. They're able to, to do all these things. Uh, the Bible does not support that that well. <laughs> what, it, what it leads you doing is it leads you saying, there's got to be a different solution. There's got to be a different answer. God's got to be doing something else. These, these priests, they represent something, but they're not living into it. It's like Adam and Eve. You know, they're, they're called to live in a certain way, but then they, they turn to themselves. They turn to their own wisdom. They, they get kicked out of the garden. They're not able to live in this way, and the story of humanity continues on and on and on, and it continues right uh, leading up to our scripture for today. So before we get into 2 Samuel 6, uh, let's back up a little ways. 1 Samuel 1 and 2. We get to 1 Samuel 1 and 2, we're introduced to a high priest right away. So this is the descendant of Aaron, he's living in this high priestly role, his name is Eli. And Eli is depicted right away as this neglectful leader. I won't get into all the details. You can look it up. But Eli is right away, he's this neglectful leader. And what's worse 
is two of Eli's sons. Does that sound familiar? Kind of reflecting on what already was happening with Abraham here. Two of Eli's sons, they're the priests that are actually, Eli, Eli's kind of sitting almost on this throne thing, which should strike us as odd. Um, and then his two sons are the ones that run the, the, the tabernacle. They run the whole sacrificial system. And we're told that they're stealing sacrifices. That people are bringing sacrifices to God, and before it even gets uh, to be the point of being a burnt offering, they're saying, I want that cut of meat. I want this cut of meat. It's truly bizarre. See, the whole system is set up that, that the Levites, they don't have land, they don't have, they don't have stuff. How, the, how they live is through the, the system. So they take, you bring a whole bull, you take certain parts, and that's what's burned, and then the rest of it goes towards the Levites. But it goes to them afterwards. So here's two of these sons, and, and they're saying, no, I want that part. Don't put the best part on the altar. No, 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 give me that right now. And he actually, they actually threaten people. There's one part where they, somebody comes and they say, certainly not. You know, I can't give you that part. I haven't sacrificed it yet. And they threaten them. Again, from bad to worse. And you want to know what's even worse, just keep reading in 1 Samuel 1. I know it's your favorite chapter, so you know it all by heart. Here's what happens, and I won't get into the details. There's these priestess women that are around, and, and Eli's sons are, I don't know how I want to say it, doing sexually inappropriate things with the priestess women in and around the tabernacle. So they're stealing the offerings, and then they're doing this, and Eli, it says Eli brings them forward, and he kind of slaps them on the hand. He says, you really shouldn't be doing that, but then he just leaves them to do it more. So he, does, he doesn't empower them, but, but he doesn't really do much. And then and we're told in 1 Samuel 2, verses 27 through 31, that a prophet comes to Eli and speaks a word from God. Here's what it says. Now a man of God, and that means a prophet, came before Eli and said to him, this is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestors' family when they left Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor, this is meaning Aaron, I chose your ancestor out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go before my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your ancestors, family, all the food offerings presented by the Israelites. Verse 29, why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you, Eli, why do you honor your sons more than me, by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by the people of Israel. Verse 30. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that members of your family would minister before me forever. We skipped over that. That's in Numbers. You can go back to that if you want. I promised that members of your family would minister before me forever, but now the Lord declares, 
far be it from me to do this thing. Those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be disdained. It's harsh, but it's warranted, right? God is slow to anger. We know that about God. That's repeated many times throughout the Bible, many times in the Old Testament, but it doesn't mean he doesn't get there. And when this kind of thing is happening, and, and the, here's the people that are, that are called to this special role, they're supposed to live in this gap, and, and they're failing at it brutally. They're failing. They're not living up to it. They're actually leading the people away from God. But notice that last line, those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be disdained. A few weeks ago, we talked about the blessing of Abraham and Sarah, the blessing that, was, that God gave to their family. It's a very uh, important verse all the way through the Old Testament. It goes like this, those that bless you will be blessed, and those that curse you will be cursed. This is God speaking of his own power over this, this couple and their descendants, that, that the people of this world, those that bless them, will be blessed because of it. And those that curse them will be cursed. But what happens when those very people start to curse God? So it sounds familiar here, right? God goes, God goes back, and, he, and now he's talking about himself, and he says, those that honor me will be honored but those who despise me will be disdained. doesn't matter what family you're from. doesn't matter how good grandma was with God. It's not, it's not going to be a good answer when you get there someday. We just see, I mean, that's just in the New Testament. It's just like, you know, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but it says, you know, I knew your grandma, <laughs> but did I know you? Ooh. So here we see God as the main character. In speaking to these special people, he says, even if you despise me, even if it's you, these special people I called out of Egypt to be this nation, to be potentially this nation of priests, and then I put certain ones of them to be priests themselves, to stand in this gap, and, and, and even those people are despising me. It's not going to go well for them. And he goes on and he, he says, I, I promised that I would make you priests forever, but far be it from me to do that thing I promised. Sounds a little bit like my grandma there. <laughs> far be it from me <laughs> to do this thing. So, so as we read forward, in First and Second Samuel, it should leave us on the edge of our seat. It should leave us with this thing that, that says that these priests, they're going to continue. There's going to be more of them, but, but God is doing something new. And we should kind of keep one, one eye open for it. As, as we read through, who is this new, this new thing that God is doing? Who's going to be this new person that's going to stand in the gap? And we continue to read, and we get several um, candidates and they all start to fall short. One is Samuel himself, but he falls short. Samuel brings King Saul forward. We read that King Saul falls short. 
but who is going to be the one that sits in this gap? And, and then we get our best candidate. The story goes on, we're introduced to David. He's this young shepherd boy, and he's chosen by God to be king. And he plays this major role going forward. We're told that he's a man after God's own heart. And, and again, First Samuel chooses Saul, and then later on God says, it's, it's not Saul. I've selected someone else. Go to the house of Jesse. Uh, this is 1 Samuel 16. God tells Samuel, fill your horn with oil and go to Jesse's house. So when someone was declared king, they'd pull oil over their head. It's, it's called anointing someone with oil. It's our word, Messiah, not to confuse you too much. That might sound familiar. <laughs> You've heard of another one. So here we come across another uh, Messiah, if you will, another anointed one of God. And, and he goes there, and he, he goes to Jesse's house, and Jesse brings forth seven of his sons, and they're strapping, handsome young men. We're told every one of them looks like they could be a king. But God says, it's none of them. And, and Samuel, a little confused, he goes before Jesse, and he says, is there anyone else? And he says, well, yeah, my youngest son. The runt of the litter. <laughs> He's, he, we left him out in the field with the sheep. You know, we couldn't leave the sheep by themselves, so we left the youngest, but certainly it's not him, right? It's, got, it's probably my oldest son. But, but we left him out there, and he says, well, go get him. And he brings him back, and it's David. And instantly, God uh, tells Samuel, just, just, just tells him right out that this is the one. Fill, fill your, or take your oil and pour it over his head. He will be the king, this youngest son. and Verse 12, Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. I wonder how that went. I don't know if any of you have brothers that are older, but I, I wouldn't imagine it going super well. Maybe at the moment. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And we see that clearly. The next chapter is one that you probably know. If, if you grew up in churches, if you did any Sunday school, you, what do you know of David? Who does he fight? Goliath, there you go. Chapter 17. That was chapter 16. Now chapter 17, we get David and Goliath. And, and David's still a boy, and he fights this mighty Philistine warrior. And with God's help, he defeats Goliath and, and saves countless lives of his Israelite uh, countrymen. So is this David, is he the one that we've been waiting for? And, and time goes on, and there's multiple books in the Bible here, so I'm really summarizing. Read it, read it yourself, it's good. And time goes on, and David becomes king, and he becomes a strong warrior. He becomes a mighty leader. He, he wins many battles, and he eventually conquers this special city, the city that he renames Jerusalem. And he decides he's going to make the city his capital. And that's where we get to our scripture reading for today, 2 Samuel 6. It says, so David went to bring the ark of God, from the house of Obed-Edom 
to the city of David, that's Jerusalem, with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fatted calf. So what do we have here? We have the world's slowest parade. <laughs> what they're doing, they're bringing the ark of the covenant. This, this kind of represents all of the tabernacle. It says We're told later that the tent was already brought there, but the ark, uh, especially in the book of Joshua, kind of comes to represent all of all of the tabernacle, so they're bringing this special piece, and, and they take six steps, and I don't know how much you know of numbers in the Bible, but seven is a significant number, all the way through Scripture. This is a beautiful representation of, the, of seven. They do one, two, three, four, five, six. Before we take our seventh one, they make a sacrifice. Again, world's slowest parade, and where's, where's David during all of this? Verse 14, wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might. So here's David in the front of the parade. The king is in the front of the parade and he's dancing. It's, it's this funny image. <laughs> and it's not just funny to us, but uh, we'll go on to what one of his, what one of his wives think. Uh, but did you catch what he's wearing? An ephod, F-O, depending on how you want to say it. And of course, we all know what that means. You're all like, I don't know what that means. Come on, Hebrew Bible scholars. This is what the priests wear. He's, wearing, he's dressed up like a priest, like the high priest. It's like this apron kind of thing. It's a sleeveless garment, and it's what the priests wear. Remember back when I, was, when I was telling you about with Eli and, and what God said to him when the corruption was there? I'll read it for you again. That was, this was verse 28. It was 1 Samuel 2, 28. I chose your ancestor, meaning Aaron, out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar to burn incense and to wear an ephod in my presence. So what's David doing? David is not one of Aaron's descendants. He's from a different tribe. And he's king, but he's dressing up like the priest. That should strike us as odd. The Hebrew Bible doesn't have uh, a, a way to, to highlight certain verses for us, but this one's highlighted. <laughs> this, this should stand out. Something, is, something new is happening. Something different is happening here. David's dressed up like a priest, and it it leaves me wondering, how is God going to feel about this? Verse 15, while he, meaning David, and all the Israelites were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds of trumpets, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, who's also David's wife, was watching from a window. And she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him with her heart. So now we at least know that David's wife disapproves of what's going on. But that's not necessarily means how God thinks. I'll just throw that out there. 
<laughs> All you married couples can. And sometimes, sometimes it works. But what does God think? Verse 17. They brought the ark of the Lord and they set it in place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And they brought it all the way up. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. And when he had finished sacrificing the offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israel, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. So now after David has brought it all the way up there, he set up the tabernacle, it's, it's on the temple mount. David does this thing that we see his ancestors do far before the priests were even around. When Noah gets off the ark, the first thing he does is offer a sacrifice to God. When Abraham is called out of his, his homeland and into a new land, as soon as he enters this promised land, the first thing he does, offer a sacrifice to God. And here we see David living into the same role. But who's supposed to offer sacrifices? Who's supposed to stand in the gap? It's the priests, right? This, this should really stand out. I feel like we just read over it, you know, and it's like, oh, I didn't really notice what was going on. This is strange. David is doing something new here. And it leaves us thinking, is he the one? Is he this priest king that's going to live in a different way? And and not only does he offer these sacrifices, what does he do next? He does the second half. He, he turns around and he blesses the people. And, and, he, and he blesses them in the name of God, but then he also makes for them a feast. And if you were around with us a couple weeks ago, we talked about uh, Abraham, and we talked about Melchizedek, this wonderful figure in the Old Testament that, I don't know, does not get enough preaching time. Google him if you want. And Melchizedek is, is this priest king of ancient pre-Israelite Jerusalem. And remember, he comes out, and he blesses Abraham, and then he gives a feast. He brings, he brings the blessing of Jerusalem out to the people, out to Abraham and his people. And, and Abraham is so moved that he gives, them a, gives him a tenth of everything he has. And we see this perfectly reflecting here. Yet we're even in the same city. And now, he, now he's brought it up, and he's got uh, all of this, this stuff, and he offers the sacrifice and, and this priest-king kind of role. And God not only accepts it, God gives him this blessing, and he turns around and he blesses the people, and he offers them a feast in the exact same way. And actually, we're told it's some of the exact same food. Again, the Bible doesn't have a way of highlighting things, but if it did, <laughs> this, this is highlighted. <laughs> There's clear connections going on here. Verse 18, I already read it. And he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread and cake of dates and, and cakes of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of the Israelites, both men and women. And the people went to their homes. But what does God think? about what's going on. That's the big question. 
Is God going to be angry about this, or is God going to be pleased about what's going on? We get our answer pretty quick in the next chapter. There's, there's this story of, of David interacting with his wife. We'll skip over that. Uh, she still disapproves. Just goes into it more. <laughs> but then God responds. 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 through 16. So This is a longer reading. I'm just going to read the whole thing right through. Again, 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 16. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took from the pasture, or I took you from the pasture, from leading the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning. and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people. I will also give you rest from all enemies. And then it goes on. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will rise, raise up your offering to succeed you your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Who are we talking about? That was a trick question, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's kind of Jesus. I, I set you up for like weeks for that one. It's kind of Jesus. Let me continue reading, and then you'll be like, eh, this part gets questionable. It's Jesus. It's also talking about, of course, his descendants, right? These, these future kings that are to come. I'm sorry, that was me. <laughs> Verse 14, I will be his father. He will be my son. When he does wrong, this is the part that you're like, eh, maybe not Jesus. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with flogging inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. That part's clearly Jesus. Here's a hint. If you're newer to reading the Bible, or maybe you're just kind of getting into it at, at this depth uh, for the first time, if you ever get to something in the Old Testament and it doesn't make a lot of sense, there's a 50% chance that if you look at this verse, 
or if you look at the blessing of Abraham and Sarah, that it's going to shine light on whatever you're going through. These are like, it's like Grand Central Station in the Old Testament. Everything is flowing through this. All the stories are going through these stories. They're going through the blessing of Abraham and Sarah, how God will bless those who bless them and curse those who curse them, and it's going through this promise to King David that your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So a few things to point out here. Verse 11, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. So what is a house? I mean, it's not, he's not like going to build him a nice castle. It's, it's his descendants, right? We kind of get that. That's not, that's not too hard. We actually borrowed that from, you know, English borrowed that from the King James Version, borrowed it from the Bible. So, so we already kind of like brought that into our own vocabulary. So that's not that hard, that the house is his lineage, it's his ancestors, um, that this line of kings that will come after David is, is what's being talked about. And there's many of them through the rest of the Bible. And some are good and most are not. Verse 14 also stands out. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with flogs inflicted, or floggings inflicted by human hands. Some of the kings that are to come, they're, they're going to be good, but most of them are not. And when they're not, that's when wars come. So it makes a lot of sense. This is how we see uh, God's judgment working out. How is God going to judge them? He's going to judge them with the nations around them. He's, he's going to use these other kings of these, these other countries. They don't even know what's going on. He's going to use them to judge uh, when people don't follow him. It's going to be done by human hands. We do a whole sermon series on God's judgment. Uh, but it's often the case. God, God uses these kind of systems of the world and, and kind of pulls back his blessing and just allows whatever's going to take place to take place. Sometimes even speeds up the process. But there's still hope in verse 16. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now next week we're going to look more closely at the one who establishes this kingdom forever. This descendant of David that is to come. And now, now who am I talking about? All right, now you're all leery. It is Jesus. It's Jesus now. That we're going to get into that next week. but uh, So that's kind of where this brings us. But before we uh, totally end, I want to give, I want to back up a little bit, uh, give a little bit of application into our own lives from one specific story in David's story. And, and I've mentioned this here before, but I think it's so important. So how many of you, maybe I shouldn't ask, how many of you have heard a David and Goliath story that goes a little something like this? You are, David, something that is going wrong in your life, some challenge, that's, that's Goliath. Uh, we're going to try to figure out what the five smooth stones are, and, and then it's just kind of like, you go fight your battle. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but like, we've all heard that sermon if you've been around churches long enough, and, and it's not entirely wrong, but, but here, here's the deal. You're putting yourself as the wrong character in this story. 
The story of David and Goliath is, is really deep. There's a lot going on here, and I think you'll like some of this. There's, there's so much more than we normally recognize. There's, but, but you're not David. David is who? There you go. Here's your Sunday school answer. Jesus. <laughs> and he fought a battle. You're not David. You're the cowering Israelite that's too afraid to fight the giant. The giant has been there since creation began. And we're told in Adam and Eve's story that someday a descendant of theirs will crush the head of the snake and will slay the giant, so to speak. So you're not David in the story. You have a Savior. You have someone else that will stand in that gap. That You're the cowering Israelites on the sidelines that, that can't fight the battle, and Jesus steps forward. And here in David, in David and Goliath, it gets so interesting. Once you know how to look for it, Goliath, they use a lot of time to describe what he looks like. He's got a lot of serpent-like things going on. There's whole books written on this. It's very interesting. So, so David or Goliath is in all bronze, head to toe. That's the, the color they use to describe snakes. And beyond that, his armor is scaled. He's wearing scaled armor. And how does he die? His head gets crushed. And then later on, I mean, we can go into detail. Later on, I mean, David runs up and he cuts his head off and he shows everyone the head that has been crushed. He crushes the head of the snake. That's clearly what's going on in the Bible here. I mean, he's not the only one that does. I mean, it's even more true about Jesus. But this is, this is definitely reflecting back into Genesis. I don't know. I'm, this is like newer to me. I, I was like reading this stuff. I'm like, this is fascinating. But it's definitely happening there. He's, he's wearing the bronze. He's got the scale on. It focuses so much on his head. It talks about his head over and over again, how exactly the wound happened, how, how his head caved in when he got hit by the stone. So we have the skull crusher in front of us. Now, he's not the true, powerful one for all time that is coming in Jesus, and it looks a little different in Jesus. We see the second half of it in Jesus, because not only does he crush sin, but he does so by receiving the wound. Right? That's the second half of what Eve is told, that her descendant will come and he will crush the head of the snake, but he will also be bitten on the heel. So he receives a wound. He's the sacrifice and he's the victorious one. This is really fascinating stuff. I, just, I find this so interesting. <laughs> There's so much going on here, but if you think that you're David, you're just going to miss it all. This battle in front of you is not one that you're supposed to fight. Jesus says that, that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He is the warrior that steps forward. It's okay if you feel like you're cowering in, in the line of soldiers and you don't even know how to step forward against this Goliath in your life because you have one that will fight on your behalf. And he has been victorious. And his, his victory is not one just simply on behalf of this Israelite army that is there. It's, it's on behalf of all of us for all time. This is beautiful news. This is the, 
you know, the gospel means good news. This is good news. You've been feeling like there's this battle that you're supposed to fight and you're supposed to be brave enough and you're supposed to, I don't know, find the right stones, whatever they are, and they're all metaphors and and this one means reading scripture and, you know, whatever it is. And, And we've been told that it's like this battle is on our shoulders. But, but instead, someone else has stepped forward. What a beautiful message. What a beautiful message in Scripture here. The battle is not yours to fight. And it's already been fought. And it's already been won. We just need to accept the Savior. We need to recognize that one that stands between us and, and whatever we're going on, and recognize that He is the Savior. That He has already rescued us from this. Quit fighting. And, and start just leaning on Him. You know, it's this beautiful image, and, and I have three little kids at home right now, so I have this blessing of, of being the dad at home, you know, kind of thing. So, especially our youngest, he's, he's still... Young enough that he likes to like come sit on your lap. Oh, what precious times these are, right? Uh, I've been told they go too quick. Um, everyone's like, yes. <laughs> but what a beautiful time, and, and how comforting he is. He falls asleep. That's just like when we're watching TV uh, up in our loft, it's like his preferred way to fall asleep is in the arms of his father. That is so much better than fighting a Goliath. As we come later on in the service, we'll, we'll take communion. And, and again, it's all the same imagery. This is my blood for you. This is my body broken for you. Let us come before this meal knowing that someone else has fought on our behalf and someone else has been victorious. We don't need to be the saviors of our own lives. We have Jesus Christ.